So when you look into what is dyslexia, a lot of people think it's a reading disability, but dyslexia is so much more. So if you have problems to connect the sounds to the letters, to give you an example, if I compare English and French and German, and German is a lot easier because there's this one-on-one of phonemes and graphemes, whereas in English or French, it's so much more challenging yeah. to connect the sounds to the letters. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I'm Dan Gable, Technology Manager for the LRC. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Sarah Lee talks about language learning and dyslexia and offers helpful suggestions for supporting dyslexic learners in and outside the classroom. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Our guest today is Sarah Lee. Sarah is a lecturer in German at Arizona State University and is also a certified K-12 and dyslexia therapist. Her research interests include bilingual parenting and learning, as well as dyslexia and language acquisition. Today, we will talk about how to best support dyslexic learners in the second language learning process. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Sarah. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into language learning and dyslexia, can you please share a little bit more about who you are with our listeners? What's your story with language learning? What do you do with languages on a day-to-day basis at Arizona State? So to give you um, a quick overview of where I'm coming from. So I was born and raised in Germany, and um, I never thought I'd be where I am right now. And it was pretty much all just um, luck and coincidences that got me to where I am which is that um, pretty much when I finished my master's in Germany, I had the opportunity to go to Michigan State and got my master's there. And then while I was looking for a topic for my master's thesis, I talked to my mom back at home who was uh, actually working with a um, therapist, with a dyslexia therapist. And so I got to talk to her And then I realized that it's actually really interesting. So I wrote my master's thesis on the topic. And then when I went back to Germany, I was uh, hired as a dyslexia therapist. And I uh, worked there for several years. Um, And I actually developed a concept for learning English. So for German native speaking kids who are learning English and who are dyslexic and how I could support them learning English um, while they were in German K-12 school. And then uh, I met my husband, moved over to Arizona, got the job at Arizona State, and now I have the um, amazing opportunity to do research there and work in the field of dyslexia and disability. Wonderful. That's that's great. So we actually ran an episode on language learning and uh, disabilities earlier this season, episode four. And it's fantastic that we can continue the conversation in this area, focusing on dis- focusing on dyslexia today. Um, so what are some of the particular obstacles for dyslexic students in a second or third language? Is Are there any differences to students who are dyslexic in their first language? Right. So, I mean, I could probably talk for three, four, 16 hours just about this <laughs> one question. Um, there are different different levels that we really have to look at. So one thing is the linguistic part of what makes you dyslexic, what are your challenges when you're acquiring a language and in the language development. 
The other part is um, how does it actually manifest in the classroom, in a school environment, in the learning environment, which is very closely connected to the psychological effect it has on the learner. And then also it is the question, and that is probably most interesting for people who are bilingual or learning a second language, it, it actually depends on um, which language you learn. And that is, again, really closely connected to the actual um, problems of language learning and what is the, the processing disorder, really, that dyslexic students have. Oh, that's fascinating. Interesting. I didn't realize that there were differences depending on, on which language you are learning. Right. And that really depends on, so when you look into what is dyslexia, a lot of people think it's a reading disability, but dyslexia is so much more. So dyslexia can manifest in, of course, reading, but also in spelling and writing, uh-huh. or it can be in both areas. It's just that reading is, since reading is for most children, the first aspect of where they're exposed to language acquisition, that's where it usually shows itself for the first time. But usually what it is, is that it's, that there is a problem with the, the way that um, the student or the learner is processing the phonemes and can actually learn how to, um, com- how to combine phonemes to graphemes and the other way around. So if you have problems to connect the sounds to the letters, then to give you an example, if I compare English and uh, French and or English and German, and German is a lot easier because there's this one-on-one of phonemes and graphemes, whereas in English or French, it's so much more challenging yeah. to connect the sounds to the letters. And therefore, um, that's also the reason why there are a lot more dyslexic people with who are English or French native speakers in comparison to German native speakers, for example. Hmm. That's fascinating. So if I understand dyslexia correctly, this um, has to do with some neurocognitive factors rather than just, you know, some children experience difficulty, like learning to read, for example, if you look at at, um, issues with reading. So does it ever happen that a student is dyslexic in a second language when they are not in a first language? Or is dyslexia something that's just underlying who a learner is? And that is, that is an excellent question because that's really the differentiation between the underlying problem of dyslexia, which doesn't change, but it just manifests mm-hmm. itself differently depending mm-hmm. on which language you're learning or which language you have to apply to. Plus, the other thing that you have to remember is there's a difference between bilingual learners and learners who are learning the second language at a later point in life because those learners already have certain strategies in place how to approach languages. And so if you already have certain strategies of how to deal with dyslexia, you will try to, to use them in the second language. Uh, whereas when you're a bilingual learner, that's a whole different story because mm-hmm. you don't have those strategies in place quite yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. How, how does this get diagnosed? Does it get diagnosed in schools? Um, specifically, if you think about students that you work with in a post-secondary context, how do we how do we even know that a student is dyslexic? Right. So um, oh, again, there's there's so many different layers <laughs> to this. So yeah. if I if I in general, when someone is struggling with language learning, I would always try to find out why are they struggling with what, uh, with language learning. And my advice as 
as a teacher is to look at really ask a lot of questions and um a really good guideline is does this student make different mistakes from another student mm-hmm. so all of us um, teachers know that there are some mistakes that are just you know that that learners do over and over and over and over yeah. again right so for example when you learn how to spell in english the silent e at the end of a word um like game or plane Mm-hmm. A lot of students forget that because you just can't hear it, right? So that's an expected mistake. If, for yeah. example, a student instead of game writes came, so with a K, mm-hmm. that is a mistake that you don't see very often. And that is a mistake where a teacher should be aware and say, hey, this is a really odd mistake. So how come a student is making this mistake? And is it just um, really that a student has a developmental delay, maybe based on some other issues that could be... Um, visual issues that could Mm -hmm. be ADHD, that could be just a low cognitive ability. So really it's important to look at the child as a whole or the learner as a whole and see where does this person come from? What is the person struggling with? And can I pretty much say all the other aspects are not there? So it could be dyslexia. And then ideally for someone who's knowledgeable of it, you would do an error analysis and you would see what kind of errors does this person make and categorize those errors. And then, for example, say, I can see that there's this reoccurring theme of the student having trouble differentiating G and K. Mm-hmm. And then therefore saying, okay, there is a problem in being able to hear the difference of the sounds. And then for second language learners, to go back to, for example, in German, the I and E sound mm-hmm. very, very similar to English native speakers. So if someone makes a mistake there, it's not necessarily that they have a processing issue. It's just that it's not a sound that they learn to differentiate at mm-hmm. a very young age. And therefore, again, it's a pretty common mistake. Mm-hmm. So is it correct then that um, the number of students who would get diagnosed at the post-secondary level is significantly smaller than at, like, say, the K-12 level? Absolutely. And the reason, there are several reasons for that. So one reason is because um, the K-12 teachers have usually some knowledge of dyslexia and Mm -hmm. they are presented with children who are learning, who are pretty much in the language acquisition, the first language acquisition phase still, whereas we in the post-secondary level, we already have learners that were exposed to learning and to languages. And so they found a lot of strategies to avoid to show how much they're struggling because most learners never were told that they're dyslexic. And that is actually something that is really sad all over the U.S. in our education system, that there's just no money that schools can help dyslexic learners. Mm. And if schools actually approach parents and say, look, I think your child may have dyslexia, most schools could be made responsible for, so to say, treating it. And mm-hmm. for helping the students, and yeah. the students just don't have the money to do it, and the teachers are just not do not get the education that they would need because they're not therapists, and they shouldn't. Sure. Teachers and schools are really, really careful mentioning big D word. Yeah, yeah, huh? Interesting. Um, so when we think about classroom implications, um, whether it is K twelve or or post secondary, or yeah doesn't matter the age of the student 
Um, what are some best practices or techniques that, that teachers, language teachers can employ to support their students or resources that they can connect their students with? And I love that you asked this question because this is actually something that I that that I think is the most important thing to get the word out and to help all the teachers because almost all of the teachers, they really want to help their students. Mm -hmm. I love how enthusiastic the teachers are and how much they want to help the students. And I think what's important is to differentiate between modification and accommodation. Huh. So modifications are usually the ones where you need an um, IP or a 504 or something that is in place in the school to really help the students um, that, that, that they can modify the learning objectives for the yeah. The accommodations are something that every, every teacher can do in the classroom. And I'm talking math, I'm talking physics, sciences, languages, everything. Yeah. It's, for example, when you give an exam, instead of having the students read all the instructions by themselves and quietly, there's no harm in this, the teacher just reading it out loud for everyone. Yeah. For example, in a math class, if you want to check if someone can add three and five, it would be unfair to have them read mm. the questions mm -hmm. because that's not the learning objective or your assessment objective, right? So that is something, for example. Um, the other thing is you can, for example, you could not rate the spelling or rate the reading when you know that someone has uh, dyslexia. That would be mm -hmm. something that could be important. Um, giving students just more time if they have to read something. Um, taking away all other distractions is really important. So maybe give them... Uh, have them take the test in a smaller room or um, where, where there's not the other students in the classroom, that would be really, really helpful. In general, don't have the student write down from the whiteboard, but instead maybe allow the student to have an iPad nearby and just take a picture of it. Mm. So they don't have to write while they listen because it's going to take away all the focus from the student. That would be really helpful. Um, and especially thinking about the um, objective assessment. So if you, for example, if you give the student a vocabulary test, you want to test not the spelling, but or most of the time, but you want mm -hmm. to test if the student knows the meaning of the word. Sure. So why wouldn't you just make an oral assessment rather mm -hmm. than an assessment? Mm -hmm. So those are all strategies that, that are really, really helpful for dyslexic students. Yeah. Are there are there associations or like websites or journals, you know, if anybody's interested in, in learning more about it or finding, you know, platforms to just read up on this or get more ideas, any, you know, anywhere we can direct our listeners to? So it really depends on why you're interested in the topic. If you're an educator, I would definitely say um, look in your state um, for the Department of Education. So I know, for example, here in Arizona, the Department of Education, they just brought out like this really comprehensive uh, material on dyslexia in the classroom and things that can be done and help for, uh, for teachers and where the teachers can get information. So I would go to your state's Department of Education and see what they say. Um, there is for parents, for example, or for students, like on Facebook, for example, there are several uh, groups that are just supporting each other, so support groups. There's the um, National Association of Dyslexia that you can definitely get help with. Um, if you are looking for therapies or way of, to help, um, I really like the um, Art and Gillingham 
um, approach because it does start at the early early stages of owning graphene correspondence and mm-hmm. the you know what is to, to get an assessment of what are your individual needs and how can we help you with that yeah great um i just saw um an article actually from arizona that was from from march 2019 about the fact that there is no dyslexia legislation Right. And that um, the article stated that Arizona is one of the fewer states that does not have such legislation. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. So we have a new superintendent for um, education here in Arizona, and she she really has a lot of great ideas of how to move this forward and how to help um, students with uh, special needs. And so I'm very, very hopeful that we're moving into the right direction here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, you know, in preparation for this episode, I actually looked up legislation in the state of New York, and uh, New York did pass dyslexia legislation in 2017. But what's interesting is that there um, is no screening or intervention requirement. So there are only um, guidance memorandums in place, but, you know, no specific what do you actually have to do. Um, and there had been a bill to require certification or training of teachers, administrators, and instructor in dyslexia, um, but that never even made it to the floor. That's that's so interesting. And again, because I think every single teacher is going to agree with you saying, yes, we need that. We want that. I, I, I do so many um, workshops for teachers that just love all that information. The problem is there's just not the money. There's not yeah. the money to put it into the teacher education and there's not the money to actually you know help all the kids in k-12 and that's that's very 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 sad um one thing that i also think is extremely helpful um i know here at arizona state we have the drc the disability resource center and all students who are dyslexic or who feel like they're dyslexic they can actually go to the drc and they will get modifications in the classroom so i really encourage everyone who's struggling with reading and writing even if you're not diagnosed as dyslexic to to reach out to find the help because there is help out there and you deserve this help so please um reach out and and get the help that you deserve that's great wonderful hey this this was so fascinating talking to you about this and i think this is an area where we definitely still have a long ways to go absolutely and actually um can i can i get a little bit linguistic with you i know you love it so okay so (laughs) i I just have to do that because it's a little tidbit that i do in my in my workshops that i think is really going to show how what it means to be dyslexic so i've talked about the phoneme graphing correspondence which is really the first step of being able to read and to write right reading is i see a letter and i translated really into a sound and then writing is i have the sound in my head and i'm translating it into a letter so i can write it down Mm -hmm. next step though is if you for example if you're writing now you cannot break apart every single word and you don't write letters to so the next step of language acquisition that is coming very early after doing the phoneme graphing correspondence is really building up this lexical storage and being able to, you've seen that probably if I give you a really difficult word that you say, hmm, that, that looks, that doesn't look right. Yeah. There's something wrong when I see it. So when I, for example, when I tell you, can you spell the word house backwards? Can you do that? Now in English? House. house. Yes, I can. House. E-S-U-O-H. 
Beautiful. So what the listeners didn't see right now is Angelica was looking up. She was actually looking up and she was reading it in front of her. Like it was, it was really showing in front of her, in front of her mind. And she was reading it backwards. Yeah. And this is something, this lexical storage is something that a lot of dyslexic students are struggling with. That they do not have the ability to see the words in front of your inner eye. Hmm. Therefore, just doing something like this, having them spell it backwards, or saying if you have a word like, let's say, uh, lawn, mm-hmm. two, two letters in the middle, mm-hmm. you have to be able to visualize it in order to be able to say that. And if a student cannot do that, that shows that there could be a problem with this lexical storage. Mm-hmm. What we do when we usually write is we give our brain the information, please fill up the information for house and then it is in front of your NRI and you pretty much just copy whatever is in front of your NRI. And when there's a mistake, you look at it and you say, oh, this, this looks really odd. And that doing that means you visualize something in front of your NRI, you see it written and it doesn't fit. And it's almost like a little alarm going off in your brain saying, nope, yeah. this is not right. And then you go back. And this is like students don't have that. So when they have to write something, they often go back to this phonetic writing of letters and and sounds, and that's why they make sometimes really, so to say, simple mistakes where teachers tend to say, oh my goodness, how can you make such a mistake? Mm -hmm. I don't have the ability to just copy it from my inner eye. Yeah, interesting. So I guess what we need to keep in mind is we have to be patient with our students, right? Whether or not they have any sort of learning disability. Right, absolutely. And I think with learning disabilities, what's so important is, I I say that a lot, is if we have a student who's in a wheelchair, we would never make them run the marathon with the other kids, right? Because it's visual. We can see that this person is struggling. And it, it breaks my heart when I have students with a learning disability in my classroom that I'm thinking, you have the right that I treat you the same way as if I could see it because I can see it. You very clearly show me that you're trying really hard, but you can't do it. So then expecting you to do the same thing that I expect of the other students, is just not fair and yeah. should be done. And I think that is something that we as educators really have to keep in mind. Yep, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, hey, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on, on this episode. It's been great speaking with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Next week, we are on spring break, so there won't be an episode of Speaking of Language. You can bridge this week by binge listening to all our old episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back on April 10th with Sarah Mercer. Dr. Mercer is Professor of Foreign Language Teaching at the University of Graz in Austria, where she is Head of English Language Teaching Methodology and Deputy Head of the Center for Teaching and Learning in Arts and Humanities. She is joining us as part of our monthly LRC speaker series. We will continue our conversation on her talk titled The Secret Ingredient of Effective Language Teaching, Teacher Well-Being. Until then, auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lupwitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lupwitz. Original music by Sam Lupwitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.
Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.